You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by the ancient tradition of Stoic philosophy from Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. For today's episode, I recorded with author Gregory Basham about his new book, Stoicism for Dummies, that helps you learn the basic principles of Stoic philosophy and navigate through the application of Stoicism. Gregory Basham is formerly Professor of Philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania. He is the author, co-author, or editor of 11 books, including Environmental Ethics, The Central Issues, The Bedside Book of Philosophy, Critical Thinking, A Student's Introduction, The Philosophy Book, 250 Milestones in History of Philosophy, and The Ultimate Harry Potter and Philosophy. On with today's episode. All right. Thank you for joining me today, Gregory Basham, co-author of Stoicism for Dummies. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. It's good to uh, connect again. After all these years, uh, Justin was was one of our uh, one of our best uh, philosophy majors back in the day. All right. Thank you so much. Yes, King's College years ago, and now today, recording for a podcast episode. What brought you to write about Stoicism? and particularly the book Stoicism for Dummies. I, I was uh, invited to, to, to co-write the book with, uh, by Tom Morris. Tom Morris is a very well-known public philosopher. He's written about 35 books. He's, he's, a, he's a very active public speaker. And uh, Tom was a, a professor of mine at Notre Dame. I was his teaching assistant, and, and we, we've remained good friends uh, ever since. And so uh, when, when Tom was approached by the dummies people, uh, he thought he was just too busy with other projects to do it solo. So he, he knew that uh, I had a, a longstanding interest in stoicism and, in fact, was, uh, was contemplating writing a book on stoic virtues. So he, uh, he called me up and asked me to, if I wanted to join him, and I very enthusiastically agreed. And what do you find is the main benefits of Stoicism or some of the major appeal for readers of your book or readers of Stoicism more generally? Well, it, it's, it's a big book. It's a comprehensive book that, that tries to cover pretty much uh, all, all aspects of, of, of Stoicism. But the, the main thrust of the book uh, is really on what Stoicism can do to help you deal better with everyday problems and, and, and live, and live a better life. So it's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very practical focus. We do uh, talk about uh, the, the, the history of Stoicism a little bit and, and some of the central Stoic uh, teachings or doctrines. Uh, and we do that because uh, we think it's important to understand the more practical parts of the book and to understand how ancient historic Stoicism does differ in some important ways from, from modern or contemporary Stoicism. But uh, as I say, the, the, main, the main thrust is really practical. It's, it's really directed at self-help, at self-improvement. Sometimes philosophy gets a bad rap, as you allude to in the book, that some ideas are very theoretical or don't have as many practical applications. But Stoicism promises to give many of those that you detail in the book, particularly living a meaningful life as Stoicism tackles some of the big questions of life. Absolutely. Um, Stoicism is, is really a, a philosophy of, of life. It, uh, it has a very practical 
focus, especially in its its more contemporary incarnations. And uh, you know, a lot of people today are really struggling with with questions of meaning and and purpose. Uh, Victor Victor Frankel, the author of uh, the well known book Man's Search for Meaning, talks about uh, what he calls an existential vacuum that that so many people are feeling today, a kind of almost total lack of of meaning or purpose in life. And Frankel sees that as a primary source of, of people's unhappiness today. They just they just don't see the point of, of life, of, of, of living. And uh, Stoicism very much is aimed at giving people a clear sense of, of meaning and a clear sense of purpose. And it's focused on virtue, what the Stoics call virtue, what we might call today moral excellence. They take that as primary. But it's also aimed at uh, at achieving inner peace, inner calm, uh, and better better management of our our emotions, especially those emotions that so often get us in trouble. So, what is the meaning that people are finding within Stoicism? The Stoics don't talk of one particular path. For instance, Epictetus talks about not everyone is meant or made or fashioned to be a husband. For instance, so that there's not just one path in which to live life, as there are often trade-offs. He writes that if you were to have to take care of children, then in some way you would have to neglect other duties that you might have or other roles that you might have. Yeah, that, that's true. And that, 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 that's a good point. I, I think you, we have to recognize that there are different forms of Stoicism. That, that was true, certainly, in ancient times. Uh, ancient uh, Greek Stoicism was, was different in, in some important ways from ancient Roman Stoicism, which is what we know, we know best. And, and today, in what's called the modern Stoicism movement, there's all kinds of different flavors, and, and it's, it's not one size fits all. You know, some, some, some modern day Stoics are mostly interested in kind of the ethical aspects of Stoicism. They want to be a, a better ethical person. They want to be kinder. They want to be uh, more loving. They, 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 they want to be more virtuous. And that's what ancient Stoicism primarily focused on. Uh, but others, and I think this is, this is actually more common today, they're interested in how Stoicism can help them lead a happier, more contented, more fulfilled life. And the Stoics offer lots of, lots of practical suggestions and lots of different techniques and practices for doing that. You mentioned that Stoicism can be a philosophy of liberation. Epictetus talks about that uh, in, in particular. He really emphasizes how Stoicism can liberate us from all kinds of things that can really weigh us down and really can be a kind of prison for the soul, uh, in particular, various kinds of negative or destructive emotions. Uh, the Stoics had all kinds of uh, very practical techniques for, for, for uh, better managing our emotions. We can be imprisoned by our desires or our bodily appetites that are out of control and that are unhealthy and, and get us into trouble. Stoicism really emphasizes a kind of spiritual or a kind of psychological freedom from all of those things inside our heads, not just, not just external constraints, but those things inside of our heads that make, uh, make our, our minds themselves a kind of prison. 
Epictetus calls for us to accept that which is outside of our control. He uses a lot of analogies comparing life to games. And one passage that I particularly liked, especially as a poker player, he was talking about people who play games of dice, that you can't control what results come up, but you can apply skill and deal with and accept the outcomes. The counters are indifferent, as he was saying, but what comes up, I can deal with that in a way that is proper for playing the games, as is in life. Many things outside of our control that we might get worried about, that we might think are going to make our lives be terrible, but we have to have a radical acceptance in many ways, Epictetus writes. Yeah, and I think that's one of his most powerful ideas. I think Epictetus kind of over overdoes it a little bit. It's all, uh, Epictetus was a very, very religious guy. Uh, he believed in the kind of higher power that he called the Logos, or God, or Zeus. He uses different terms for it. But uh, like, like other Stoics, he believed that Everything that happens in life is, is the result of God's will. It's the result of fate. It's the result of divine providence. Everything is kind of mapped out already. Everything is ultimately, ultimately faded. And a lot of what's faded is outside of our control. And, and since Epictetus believed ultimately since God is in charge and since God is, is completely good, uh, whatever happens in life must, in some mysterious way perhaps, happened for the best. And so he, for religious reasons, really, he, he, he urged his students to uh, accept whatever happens in life, either in world events or in their own lives, any kind of misfortune that might befall them. They should recognize that that's ultimately God's will, and it's ultimately for the best. It may not be what's best for them personally, necessarily, because Epictetus believed that ultimately the good of the whole is more important than the good of the individual. But, uh, you know, for those, for those reasons, he believed that uh, we must uh, not only reluctantly accept what seem like bad things in our life, but we should, we should cheerfully and even, even lovingly accept those things. This is the Stoic idea of amor fati. The, the the love of fate and a lot of and, and you know a lot of people would not push it that far they, they would say you know there are certain things in life that we should perhaps accept in some sense but that doesn't mean that we should should love them or, or welcome them or, or strongly approve of them or whatever uh, but still a, a general attitude of acceptance of those things that we can't control uh, can be a, a a real pathway to inner peace. And that's, I think, what a, what a lot of modern Stoics really stress, the way in which acceptance can make us calmer and, um, you know, uh, happier, less frustrated people. There's a passage here from Seneca that talks about blunting the blows of chance, that philosophy can provide an armor, as he has this analogy, the power of philosophy to blunt the blows of chance is beyond belief. No missile can settle in her body. She is well protected and impenetrable. She spoils the force of some missiles and wards and wards them off with the loose folds of her gown as if they had no power to harm. Others she dashes aside and hurls them back with such force that they recoil upon the sender. So it's a metaphor there for war or some sort of comparison of being attacked in some way, but having uh, an armor or the armor of philosophy, as he writes, 
is going to help us deal with what we would call misfortunes or calamities. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful passage, and it, it's really it's really the same idea that Marcus Aurelius talks about in the Meditations when he talks about our ability to retreat to what he calls the inner citadel, uh, a kind of castle or fortress uh, that we can we can we can uh, retreat into to protect us from emotional harm, emotional distress, disappointment, frustration, and so forth. And it's all related to uh, Epictetus's idea that it's not uh, it's not things that upset us. It's how we respond to things, how we react to things. We control how we react to things. We don't control what happens to us. And that's a that's a tremendously powerful idea. I think that's one of the one of the great ideas that uh, anybody has ever come up with. Uh, that it's not things that disturb us, it's how we react to things. That we control. Right, or even how we interpret things. I believe you talked about road rage in some parts of your book, that some people would cut us off, some people would get very angry about that, or some people would, all this judgmental language about the driver, but you said maybe the person's not paying attention, they're in a rush, maybe... They're on the way to the hospital, and that's why they're speeding or being maybe reckless on the road. That's maybe another interpretation there. So it, it comes down to interpretation in many ways. It does, and 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 Epic, Epictetus recommends that we always adopt a charitable interpretation. You don't know what's going on in somebody else's life. You don't know what they're going through. Um, you know, so so don't be so judgmental. Give give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and I think that's so relevant today because there, there's so much anger in our world today. We, we live in such stressful, polarized times, and there are so many frightening things happening in the world, and things are just changing so fast. Uh, people are not only anxious, but they're, 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 they're angry, and stoicism has a whole toolkit of ways of, of dealing not only with stress and anxiety, but also with uh, with anger. Yes, and Seneca particularly has the on anger, and Stoics in general, especially the classics, the classics would talk about anger as being wholly undesirable. Whereas some might say, "Oh, anger can stir us to a great victory," or there can be some vengeance, righteous vengeance. But the Stoics were very much against anger, as it clouds the mind. They say and leads us to irrational decisions. And not everybody agrees with Seneca when he when he argues that we should try and totally uh, avoid all all feelings of anger. And, you know, at some level, he he says it's 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 unavoidable. It's because we're human beings and we're emotional animals. We we can feel these southern these sudden kind of spasms or surges of of something like anger, but. Uh, Seneca wants to suggest that that's not true anger. That's what he calls a pre-passion. Uh, true anger involves something else. It involves an actual judgment, a, a judgment of the, the rational intellect that this is something really bad that is happening to me. I've really been mistreated. And this is something so bad that I should really react in a very uh, irate and angry way. And Seneca wants to argue that that's that's a false judgment. Um, that's that's not something that is truly bad, 
as the Stoics understand understand what is what is truly bad for them. Nothing is truly bad except immorality. And we can maybe not rise to anger as a result of injustice, but work to correct things, work to help others in some way as I think there's, and you talk about it in the book, um, misconception of Stoicism that, oh, Stoics are just passive. Stoics are just going to not rise to action, and they're just going to have this acceptance of things but not actually do something in the world. But many of the Stoics themselves, (laughs) Marcus Aurelius, an emperor who was working to make the world a better place. Absolutely. And I think that's a a common misconception. Uh, Both both Seneca and and Marcus Aurelius uh, were very... High-level political officials. Marcus Aurelius, of course, was the emperor of Rome. Seneca was almost the de facto emperor of Rome for a period of five years. When Nero, who was who was very young and was off sowing his wild oats, um, was doing other things. Uh, and 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 these uh, these two men, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, worked tirelessly to uh, to, to to better conditions in the world. They were not passive in the least. Uh, I think you know we have to recognize that you can be very, very committed, active life to public life, to all kinds of good causes, and you can work very hard and very tirelessly for those good causes without necessarily having the emotional baggage uh, that so often goes along with that. Some people might want to avoid the commons due to anxiety or wanting to withdrawal, but the Stoics were very much against that. They wanted us to be part of the world and talked about a cosmopolis, a global community of people, a society, a world, and much more. Whereas maybe the Epicureans said, okay, let's go to our walled uh, area or our garden. The Stoics wanted to be active in the world. That's right. Uh, that, that was a big difference that they had with the Epicureans. They, the Epicureans thought that life is all about the intelligent pursuit of pleasure. And if you're if you're only interested in pleasure, then you probably don't want to get involved in politics because <laughs> there's a lot of hassles and annoyances and stuff that goes into politics. But the Stoics actually agreed with Plato. You might remember in Plato's great work, The Republic, he talks about how the, the, the philosopher, the enlightened person, reluctantly would, would agree to re-enter the political arena simply because they have a strong sense of obligation. You know, they, they, they have a vision of what what a good and just society would be like. And other people who might be running a show uh, may not have such a good vision. And so they felt a kind of obligation. It really flows from a strong sense of morality, uh, of, of dedication to the common good. Be willing to enter the sweat and the, blind, the, the, the grime and the blood of the public arena uh, for the sake of a good cause. Uh, even knowing you're, you're going to be, you know, constantly faced with with annoying people and difficult people and difficult problems and stress and tension, but the Stoic believes that uh, they can handle it and that it's it's worth it to uh, to make that kind of personal sacrifice. And returning to anxiety, you write in your book, we make fundamental mistakes in our approach to life that render us vulnerable to anxiety, worry, and fear. We sleepwalk through our days far too often and are surprised at what happens to us as a result. So some people might think, oh, society is not worth it because all these bad things are happening. I'm just going to try to avoid that. 
sit at home, but that's not going to lead to much personal growth. And a lot of these are just mistaken judgments in many ways, I'm sure. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I think uh, anxiety, worry, stress are as commonplace now, perhaps uh, more commonplace now than I can certainly remember in my lifetime. Everybody seems seems stressed. Everybody seems there's just uh, too much crap that's constantly flying at them all the time. There's so many things to worry about. But what the Stoics want to want to say is that at least a lot of worry, a lot of stress is misplaced. Uh, we worry about stuff that we don't really need to worry about. For the Stoics, um, again, what, what ultimately matters is being a good person. If something doesn't interfere with your ability to be a good person, it's really not something that you should you should stress over. You should you should regard it as what they called an indifferent, something that really does not affect your 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 well-being one one way or another. And so I think if you have that kind of uh, that kind of attitude, it's a lot easier to to deal with all the stuff that life throws at us. You write in your book about Epictetus talking about despising externals and scorning certain externals. And this is a lot in the classic Stoics and even in the modern Stoics of saying things maybe like lavish dinners and fame and political ambitions in some cases for the sake of popularity or the sake of power. When you're not going to use that power in a good way, these are things that we we shouldn't seek. And I'll, I'll scroll through Facebook and I'll see people posting like, "Oh, I had this lavish dinner, and they're paying like four hundred dollars for this steakhouse meal." And I'm thinking like, "Oh wow, I, I don't I don't even want that." <laughs> I guess if it's for free, but what must be traded for what is a question that comes up a lot in Stoic texts. You're going to trade your time for money and that steak dinner. So some people might think, "Oh, because it's expensive, because it has a lot of public praise." This thing is good. This is a thing we should aspire towards. And, and maybe we can question that common wisdom in society, embrace a more frugal life, and be more intentional with our time and money. Yeah, I, I, I like that a, a lot. Um, yeah, you, you know, you really you touch on something that I think a lot of modern Stoics grapple with, which is kind of what to make of Epictetus, it's not, it's not, it's not easy to know how, how exactly to read him because he, he comes up with these zingers all the time. He says not once, but many times that we should rid ourselves of desire. Well, <laughs> we should rid ourselves of destructive desires, unhealthy desires. But if you think about it for two seconds, it's, it's impossible to go through life without having some desires, you know, to breathe, to eat, you know, whatever. So, so what, what does he really mean? It's not clear exactly. And the same is true when he says uh, over and over again that uh, externals, things that are outside our direct control, uh, are nothing to us. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty bold saying because externals include things like your family and your job and your health and you know all, all kinds of things that most of us think are pretty pretty important. So, so what, what, what is he saying? I mean, is this, is this something that he means literally? I, I don't think so. I think uh, Epictetus was one of those teachers, and I think uh, Jesus was another one, that that's part of the way they teach. They, they use a kind of deliberate exaggeration oftentimes to really drive home a point. Jesus did that when he says things like, you know, 
resist not evil, give to everyone who asks, you know, and so forth. Well, I, I don't think those were probably meant to be taken completely literally. He, he, he's saying something for effect. He, he's, he's, he's giving a kind of a bold general uh, statement there or, or a general kind of directive and with the understanding that we're going to interpret it in kind of a in kind of a, a reasonable and fair way. And I think the same is true of Epictetus. You have to remember the context of, of Epictetus. Uh, Epictetus did not actually write anything. Uh, this, somebody just took some notes of his of his everyday teaching and scholars tell us that what we have in the discourses of Epictetus and in the handbook of Epictetus uh, are, are really just uh, kind of uh, kind of pep talks that he was given to giving to his students after the school day was over. Most of his students are teenage boys from wealthy families, and there were probably also a scattering of of other kinds of visitors and so forth who were not part of the school. So, given that. You know, you can kind of understand the the way in which he would talk sometimes in an exaggerated way. Uh, he's he's not trying to be absolutely precise and careful and and rigorous in in what he's doing. He's speaking to drive home a point and drive it home as forcefully as he can. Yeah, there's another controversial passage you mentioned is like think to yourself at night or maybe like say to a loved one that tomorrow you may not be here. It's like this isn't the greatest bedtime story, but maybe what he's getting at is that we can anticipate hardships. We can anticipate a future in which things don't work out in some ways that maybe the daughter might come up with some sickness in the morning. And uh, especially in the ancient world, the the life expectancy was much lower and things might happen like exile. And maybe what the Stoics, the classics are getting at is that all these externals are not guaranteed and that these aren't necessary to live a good life. As you talked about what Diogenes the cynic would have very few possessions. He'd be out there in the public square wearing maybe nothing or like a small uh, covering on him and be drinking water with his hands and he, he thought he had a good life. So if Diogenes could do it, then maybe others with not as much wealth, not as much status, maybe they could still live a good life. Yeah. yeah. Again, you're, you're drawing attention to one of those, we might call them hard sayings of Epictetus. They sound awfully, awfully harsh to us and, and insensitive. He, he says at one point that uh, if you're consoling somebody for some loss, for example, they might have lost a child. Certainly, you should you should be you should act sympathetic. You should you should say consoling things, but be sure not to groan within in in your own mind. In other words, don't feel any actual psychological or emotional distress, because the Stoics their their ideal was that you would have no painful feelings, no no feelings of distress at all. But I, th I think what he's doing there is he's really talking about the ideal. He's talking about how a Stoic sage who is a kind of ideal human being, he's morally perfect, he's, he's intellectually perfect, how a sage might react. But um, re really Epictetus is directing his teaching to people who are not sages. As I say, he's, he's, he's teaching young boys. Uh, and so I, I think... You know, you know, re really, he, he, he's 
again, probably speaking in a kind of an exaggerated way. I, I think what, what he would really want to say is if you're, if you're really an ethical person, and that's really the goal of being a Stoic, you are going to be genuinely sympathetic. You're not going to fake it. You're going to be genuinely sympathetic because that's what that's what being an ethical person requires. Yeah, it's a common theme in, in Stoicism that all these bad things can happen, so don't be so complacent in your current state. It was one of the moral letters from Seneca, a lesson to be learned from the burning of lions. He's writing here about a man who lost his hometown, his country, that just went up in this sudden conflagration or blaze. Seneca writes, we should therefore reflect upon all contingencies and fortify our minds against the evils which may possibly come. Exile, torture, or disease, war, shipwreck, we must think on these. Chance may tear you from your country or your country from you, or may banish you to the desert. This very place uh, may become a desert. <laughs> so all these uh, wild things might happen day to day. So maybe not having too much reliance on externals rather than maybe despising them would be a more sympathetic position. Well, in, in that passage that you quote, he's, he's really talking about one of the, the stoic uh, psychological practices, uh, the premeditation of, of adversities, the meditatio malorum, as, as, as they called it in Latin. And the idea there was that you, you try and prepare for possible future hardships or adversities by kind of, you know, very vividly imagining that that adversity is happening right now and then imagining yourself really responding to that adversity in a, in a very strong and stoic way. So, for example, you might be concerned about losing your job. Well, tackle that head on. Think about it. You know, imagine that you get fired tomorrow uh, and then imagine yourself dealing with that in a way that uh, is very emotionally resilient. Uh, you're not going to be crushed by that. You're going to you're 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 going to uh, find another job, maybe a better job. You know, you think about it in a positive way, and in that way, you can kind of fortify yourself in advance, as, as you said, fortify yourself, prepare yourself in advance to deal in a in a in a in a, in a strong and a really ethical way with, uh, with with various kinds of hardships, because we're all, we're all gonna we're all gonna face hardships. One one day. Your doctor is going to say, sorry, you have terminal cancer or whatever it is. I'm sorry, your wife has passed away. Those things are going to happen to us. And the stoic attitude was it's better to prepare ourselves in advance for those kinds of things. We're going to be much better positioned to deal with them uh, if we if we do that. Yes, more analogies in the stoic text are life is not always a picnic. Life is not always a dance. There are these things that we would consider ups and downs that we don't have influence over in many cases. So getting ready to deal with these things is really important. And as a poker player, and uh, poker is what drew me to stoicism, we can get all in in many circumstances, have huge edges and huge advantages, but occasionally losing. So we have to accept that before we get to the poker table and just do our best and make rational decisions. And that's a lot what the stoics are saying that we're just going to do the best we can and focus on things we have control over and not get so off kilter when things happen that we don't like. And that I would just add, you know, when it comes to that premeditation of adversities, that I think the, the Stoics would also want to say that 
you don't want to you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to dwell excessively on the negatives. Uh, you don't you don't want to imagine future is going to be bleak and it's going to be you know all you know nothing nothing but problems and nothing but hassles and hardships and adversities. Uh, because you know the the Stoics are very much into into positivity, maintaining a positive frame of mind, and so they 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 would insist that we approach this these this premeditation process uh, in, in with, with a, a positive frame of mind and and not not dwell excessively on the negative. And the philosophy's promise in general, not just Stoicism, is that the examined life is going to lead us to have a better life that we're kind of future proofing in a way that if we're structuring our life in a good way, we're building a strong foundation, then we're probably going to have good outcomes as far as we can control. Right. Uh, and th there you're really talking about the importance of, of, of philosophy, having a kind of philosophical mindset. Socrates says we should live an examined life an examined, an unexamined life is not worth living. And the Stoics, especially Seneca, really talked about the, the importance of, of thinking about philosophy, reading philosophy, doing philosophy. Philosophy for the Stoics was something very practical. It was, it was something that is, is intended to help us lead better lives and deal more effectively with our problems. Now, Seneca says that uh, a, a, a philosopher's school is a doctor's clinic because it actually helps us deal with all kinds of problems and all kinds of, of especially you know psychological issues, moral issues, uh, emotional management issues that we all face. We can learn a lot by from from philosophers, good philosophers, about how to uh, to deal with those kinds of issues and have a happier life too. This word happiness in modern terms is associated sometimes like happy happy joy joy ren and stimpy like let's just eat all this uh, junk food and sweets or whatever but <laughs> the ancient stoics were, were not talking about that necessarily uh, marcus aurelius was writing the needs of the happy life are few and talking about things like virtue not so much as pursuing day-to-day -day, like pleasure from food or certain physical activities yeah i think that's again something that's commonly misunderstood uh, the Stoics talk a lot about happiness and, and how Stoicism can help us lead happier lives. But uh, they're really talking about a, a different kind of happiness than, than we often have in mind today. I think for many of us today, when we think about happiness, we think of, of a life that's full of fun, that's full of pleasure, that's full of enjoyment and so forth. For Stoics, that's not something that is strictly good those are feelings that that's a buzz in your head a positive buzz in your head and you can't necessarily control that and so only what we can control is what's good uh, only virtue is strictly good and so happiness is for, for the stoics a kind of uh, desirable and in fact inevitable byproduct of of virtue uh, it's not something that we should make as our direct aim. It's something that we can achieve and will achieve if we uh, live fully virtuous lives. And another misconception is saying the Stoics are killjoys, 
But in reality, the Stoics are saying to place value on things that are really important. And you can still pursue things like drinking wine, as the classics would write, or travel, but not prioritize this too, too much and still have a sense of moderation to not overindulge and not neglect your other responsibilities or roles. I mean, that, that, that's an important issue, too. Is, and we talk about that in our chapter on pleasure. How important is pleasure in life? Uh, for the Stoics, the Stoics in general were kind of, you know, and I say this very generally, they were, they were, they were suspicious of pleasure because they, they recognized that so often when we get into trouble, it's because we have a desire for some kind of pleasure that, uh, you know, for, for drink or, or whatever it might be. And so they were cautious. They, they you know, the, the Epicureans were all about pleasure. The Stoics were the opponents of the Epicureans. They, they urged us to, to, to keep, to, to curb our pleasures, to keep a, a close watch on our pleasures, not to overdo our pleasures. But as you say, they're, they're, they're not, they're not killjoys. Uh, the Stoics, for example, believe that uh, uh, for the sage, the, the kind of ideal Stoic uh, person, uh, the sage would experience <clears throat> what they called joy, which is a kind of pleasurable feeling. And so they were, they were certainly not, not totally anti-pleasure. And moving on to another topic, you have a large chapter on the topic of death. You write, acceptance of death helps us value the time we have and to not procrastinate. You also mention that there's an emotional acceptance of death. That's a strong point with the Stoics that Epictetus compares death to a sea voyage. We can prepare, we can do what we can, but then a storm can arrive. That's outside of our control. So accepting death is very important within Stoicism and philosophy in general. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the Stoics recognize that death is, for many people, their greatest fear. You know, it's the, it's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of what might happen in a possible afterlife. Could there be a hell? Could, could there, you know, what, we just don't know. Shakespeare said, death is the undiscovered country from who's born, who's de whose destination no man returns. It's it's the great blank, the, the great unknown. I think we all we have an instinctual kind of dread or or, or fear of death. Uh, that's kind of you know deeply embedded in our in our genes. It's evolution evolution strategy for making sure that we stay alive. And the Stoics had a whole slew of arguments to try and deal with that that very common and very powerful fear of death. It's something natural. It's not something bad. Only only immorality is bad. We don't, in fact, know what will happen after after we die. Uh, it, it might be something good. Marcus Aurelius is, all, is always talking about that fact that we just don't know. You know, death might mean annihilation. It might mean dispersal of our atoms into, you know, the, the, their constituent elements, or it might mean, uh, you know, uh, some, something wonderful. We we just don't know. But uh, because death is not a harm as the Stoics understood harm, it's, it's not something that we should, we should fear. It's part, of, it's part of the nature's way of recycling, nature's way of clearing the ground for other people, other life forms to come along and to live a, a good life just like you lived a good life. And it's, it's not something that we should, we, should, we should therefore fear. In fact, they went further and they said, in some circumstances, we should welcome death. 
and to not squander our life or squander our time before death happens is a major theme within Stoicism, to not procrastinate, to make good use of our time, to do things that we find meaningful and balance some recreational activities and not just like be all academic all the time, right? Uh, we, we can mix things and still be a virtuous individual, find purpose. Well, that's, that, that's very true. The Stoics thought that the thought of death, the, the knowledge that someday we will die, uh, can actually help us lead a, a more meaningful life. It can give us a sense of, a sense of finiteness, of, of finite time. It can give us a sense of urgency, you know, that we, we only have so many, so many breaths on this planet. Why not make the most of it? Why not live, live, live the best life that we can? And speaking of death, the metal band Death has a song called Suicide Machine about taking our lives early if we deem that to be fitting. And also the song Pull the Plug on those same ideas that like living life in a vegetative state, not being able to have control over our decisions is not a desirable thing. And the Stoics say that it can be rational to end our lives early, but not to do that on a whim but to make a very careful choice if we can determine that life is no longer worth living. That's right. That, and that's one of the more controversial aspects of ancient Stoicism is that they did they didn't recognize that sometimes suicide can be the rational choice. That uh, there, there might come a time when, as Epictetus said, the room just becomes too smoky and then there's always the door. You can walk out the door. But he, he did caution. Uh, he, he seemed to think that it was it was uh, it was a pretty rare situation when a stoic would be would be warranted in taking their own life. Uh, but but certainly, uh, certainly we can imagine that if, if, if life involves too much pain, if it involves too much loss of dignity, if it involves something like dementia or Alzheimer's where it's no longer possible to, uh, you know, to, to act in a virtuous way, then the, the Stoics believe that suicide might be the, the rational option, the best option. And even other applications, talking about this burning building, if we determine the, build, the building is burning, instead of complaining to just get out the open door, as you mentioned, I think in some other areas of life, people might complain about jobs. Oh, this job sucks. Oh, I just feel so tired all the time. Oh, the pay is low. But some of these people remain in the same job. They don't look for other opportunities. They don't look to improve their lives. And some might think there's nothing else I can do. And that seems to be an early death, as some of the Stoics have written as well, that if you don't live your life in a purposeful way, it seems like you have died early. What, what I would want to say, and what I, what I think Stoics would want to say to such a person who's just uh, you know stuck in a dead-end job and doesn't want to leave it. Um, they need a little bit of uh, stoic courage. Courage is very important to the Stoics. It's one of the the four so-called cardinal virtues. They thought that courage is is an absolute requirement for for doing just about anything in life that's really really worthwhile. You, you've got to be willing to take some risks. You've got to be willing to stand up for what you believe in. You've got to you've got to be willing to endure pain, hardship without complaint. Strong spirit, courage is very important to Stoics, and I think a lot of people today would really benefit if they if they tried to act in a in a in a, in a truly courageous way. And on the other end of the dead end job, there are some people that are making hundred thousand, two hundred thousand a year, 
and they talk about being paycheck to paycheck and the desire for more satisfaction, whether it's certain substances or, oh, I need to have this expensive car. I need to have these expensive clothes. Oh, I need to impress these people. And then they still ultimately don't end up happy, even though they have lots of money. Perhaps they squander that money and they still don't find happiness. Well, the Stoics would say that people like that are in the grip of a certain kind of passion that the Stoics called desire, epithumia. They, they, they've got uh, desires that are, that are out of control, that are outsized. Uh, they're desiring things that are, in many cases, not truly good for them. Um, that are not going to make them happy. Desire is, is, is a kind of, for the Stoics, is a kind of uh, very dangerous quality, or, or uh, they would call it a, an impulse, that uh, we, we, need, we need to really learn how to manage and control better. And I think there they're, they were sharing an insight that the Buddhists had come to several centuries er, earlier. Uh, Buddha, in his, his summary of his, of his central teachings, the, the Four Noble Truths, says that uh, life is suffering and the, the cause of suffering is desire is out of out of control desire unhealthy desires cause a tremendous amount of unhappiness and the stoics would depart from christians who might think that the the flaw of humanity is sin but the flaw might be lack of knowledge that if we have gained knowledge then that leads our life to be in a better path. And there are a lot of parallels you write even between Christianity and Stoicism that some of the Christians like Aquinas drew from the Stoic tradition and built upon that. That's, well, that's that's true. And, and that's not an accident because, you know, like 99% of all the Stoic writings have, have been lost. Uh, the, the, the most important Stoic thinker, Chrysippus, who, who lived about uh, you know, two, 250 AD or so, wrote over 700 works. And, you know, we have the titles of hundreds and hundreds of them, but we don't have the works themselves. They've disappeared. The, the, the only complete Stoic writings that we have are from the Roman period, the Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, even though we only have half of Epictetus's discourses. And the reason why we still have those is because all three of those Romans say things in many cases that are very similar to Christianity. Uh, and that's why they were, that's why their works were preserved all through those centuries uh, by the monks or, or whoever was preserving them. They were, they were recopied because they were thought to be, you know, very simpatico in, in many ways with, with Christianity. And when, when the works of Seneca were rediscovered in the Renaissance, you have people like Erasmus and Montaigne and, and other Christian thinkers who regarded Seneca as a kind of honorary Christian, you know, because uh, so much of what he says is is resonant with, with Christian teachings. All right. We're headed to the end of the conversation. We'll talk about some changes from the classic Stoics to the modern Stoics. And before the final section of your book, you write that some Stoic ideas are outdated, like the heart being the seat of consciousness, the earth at the center of the universe, conflagrations, maybe that's not a thing, although maybe some scientific discoveries might be kind of close to that, maybe, in some interpretations. But there are many useful teachings that survive today, as we talked about. And in the modern Stoics, like Donald Robertson, you mentioned Massimo Piliucci, 
they take stoicism in a bit of a different direction, preserving some of the main things, but then not talking about others or saying, okay, we need to dump ideas like the logos, for example, or some of the other stoic ideas that I mentioned. Yeah, um, we have a whole whole section where we try and kind of carefully spell out the, the major differences between ancient historic stoicism in, in Greek and Roman times and the, 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 the various contemporary varieties of stoicism that are popular today, what's, what's called modern stoicism. And there, there are a lot of differences, but uh, the basic difference is that uh, modern stoicism is a very stripped down version of ancient stoicism. Stoicism had a, had a whole giant worldview, a, a whole physics, a whole theology, you know, uh, a whole epistemology, a theory of knowledge. And, and a lot of that is, is simply dropped in modern Stoicism. Modern Stoicism focuses on ethics. It focuses on uh, kind of uh, psychological health, focuses on practical things that, that we can do to, to live better lives and be, be better, uh, better persons. And I think that that's actually an improvement. I think uh, in a lot of ways, modern Stoicism is more, more attractive and more plausible than than the ancient version there's there's also a a fairly significant shift i think in in ancient stoicism the emphasis was all on virtue moral excellence that's regarded as the only thing that's truly good if you have moral excellence you have everything you need for maximal well-being and in modern stoicism at least in many many variations the focus is more on personal happiness, inner calm, inner tranquility. Uh, as I said, for the the ancient Stoics, these are kind of add-ons. These are these are things that that are are side effects, so to speak, of virtue. They're not good in themselves, okay? Because you can't fully control your level of personal happiness. That's really the the the, the primary emphasis in Stoicism. In some ways, it's it's rather similar to a kind of uh, uh, self-help pop psychology, you know, with some with some stoic uh, cherries kind of on on top. It's uh, it's it's ra- rather similar to, to 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 psychology, and there there are lots of overlaps between uh, various schools of of psychotherapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy and, and rational emotive behavior therapy and positive psychology and so forth. Lots of overlaps between stoicism today and those forms of psychotherapy. And you mentioned there are a lot of pros that it's just reached a broader audience. People have embraced stoicism. We see like stoic tattoos and slogans and much more coming along, a lot of popularizers, a lot of followers who are taking things from the tradition, maybe discarding others. And even Seneca said that we shouldn't be slavish to our teachers, but take what was right from those ages as we learn new information, we can adapt our ideas and not just be completely beholden to tradition for tradition's sake. No, I think that there, there are a lot of wonderful things about modern stoicism. And I know that there's certain, you know, uh, stodgy scholarly types who would who would say this is not real stoicism this is not real philosophy and so forth it's it's too oversimplified it's too popularized and so forth but to me it's an astonishing thing that so many millions of people millions of americans in particular are really into this classic 
ancient philosophy. And they're talking about Socrates. They're talking about Seneca. Uh, they're talking about Marcus Aurelius, and they're reading those people. And to me, those are some of the, the greatest thinkers and greatest philosophers of all time. I think it's it's the, the more you think and and study Socrates, the better off you are. You know, so I, I think it's actually a, a wonderful thing. We'll have to see how much staying power it has. I think the you know the reality is that, that most most philosophies, and this is certainly true in America, have a relatively short shelf life. And there's, you know, there's existentialism flourishes for a while, and then it's gone, and transcendentalism and pragmatism and other other philosophies who have had their day in the sun here in America. Modern Stoicism may be in the same boat, but to me, the heart of Stoicism really goes back to Socrates. And I think Socrates never goes out of style, never goes out of favor. Uh, he, he is one of those perennial philosophers that will always interest and engage people at all times and places. And uh, so I think uh, people might be surprised by how much staying power modern stoicism has. Yeah, we'll see. I got involved in this, I think, maybe seven years ago or so. And during COVID, it was quite an uptake or upshot in popularity that People really look towards stoicism to get through the shelter in place, the isolation, the seclusion, and all this uncertainty. Yeah, and but you know that, that that it may be starting to fade a little bit since since COVID. I, th- I think I think it probably is. I think interest in modern stoicism has probably peaked and and it's declining a little bit now, but uh, it's still going very strong. I mean, there 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 are books being published every week on on stoicism, and there are more and more podcasts and so forth. So it's uh, it's it's quite a it's quite a cultural phenomenon. All right. Any closing thoughts for the conversation? Things we didn't mention? Things you'd like to bring up? Uh, not really. Just to to thank you and to say again how how nice it is to uh, to to connect with you again. I I, I remember you very well from uh, days gone by at, at King's College. Those were those were those were good years for. I think not only the the, the majors we had then, uh, but also for the faculty members that we had in the department. It was uh, it was a good time in our lives. Oh, thanks. Yes, I enjoyed your epistemology class. And if you look back in the records of the podcast, you can find other King's College professors. Dr. Irwin was on the podcast several times. Dr. Johnson was on Dr. Reitzma. So uh, it could be a reunion um, from the past going a few years back. I, I hired all, all three of those, and they're all, <laughs> they're all great friends of mine. All right. Very good. Thanks for the book. Thanks for chatting today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, and take care. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more content. See the show notes for more information and links surrounding topics discussed in this episode. Support my efforts through my Patreon page, found at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. Access special perks, including having upcoming podcast guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at hurdygurdytravel.com, that's H-U-R-D-Y-G-U-R-D-Y travel.com, to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at low cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Meet me in person during monthly meetings in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, with my group Greater Philadelphia Travel, credit miles and points, found at meetup.com slash Philly, Miles and Points. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. 
Have a great day.